everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our newest podcast, Striker Talks. Few companies in the medical device industry touch the entire spectrum of healthcare like Striker. From accident scenes to ERs, from ORs to patient rooms, Striker delivers the supplies, tools, and devices used to provide patients with the highest quality of care. In this podcast, we'll talk with the company's leaders to gain a better understanding of how innovation, new technologies, and teamwork will further Striker's mission. Let's go. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. I am editorial director of Device Talks. We put on conferences, we put out podcasts, and I'm very pleased to bring you this first episode of Striker Talks, our newest podcast series. We're going to bring you episodes uh, roughly once a month, as I said in the opening. We're going to talk with the leaders of Striker's various businesses, and I'm very pleased to begin this conversation with an interview I did with Spencer Stiles. Spencer is group president of Orthopedics and Spine at Striker. And in this conversation, we talked about the right integration. We talked about Mako. We talked a lot about Striker's future via digital surgery and other aspects as well. So I've enjoyed talking with Spencer in the past and happy to continue the conversation. Before we begin, though, I did want to make one editorial note. When I spoke with Spencer, it was prior to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. So his comments about the future do not relay the impact that we've seen from that invasion, but uh, I don't think it changes the context or the content very much, but I did want to add that layer of color. Before we begin this very first episode of the Striker Talks podcast, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, AutoCam Medical. I'm speaking with Tom O'Mara. Tom is an executive vice president at AutoCam. Tom, can you tell us about AutoCam Medical? AutoCam Medical is a leading contract manufacturer of precision machine components and assemblies for the OEM market. Uh, We're headquartered in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We have a facility here and actually are adding another facility here in Grand Rapids. We have a facility in Plymouth, Massachusetts, one in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, one in Suzhou, China, and one in in Dayatuba, Brazil. We have over 550 associates throughout the world. We continue to add to our headcount and our facility growth as we uh, expand our business. That's great, Tom. Thanks for the information. If you'd like to find out more about AutoCam Medical, just stay tuned. We'll have another message from Tom a little later in the episode. You can also go to AutoCam Medical's website. It is AutoCam with one M dash medical dot com. So AutoCam dash medical dot com. Now, let's begin this episode of the Striker Talks podcast. Well, Spencer Stiles, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me today. It's a treat to have you, and, and it's great to have you as the, uh, as the kickoff guest for the new Striker Talks podcast. Uh, you're obviously leading one of the bigger businesses at Striker, and uh, you've had a lot of news over the past couple of years, so a uh, lot to catch up on. As always, uh, I'd love to find out. We talked once before for our Device Talks Weekly podcast, but uh, and we went over your, your entry into, uh, into MedTech, but I'd love to recap your story. How did you find your way to MedTech? And, and if I remember correctly, uh, and I should because I just listened to the podcast yesterday, your first job in MedTech was at Stryker. 
That's right. I, I've had the very fortunate opportunity to work at Stryker my entire professional career. And as a lot of things go, I had a, a connection in my undergraduate world that was a friend of a friend that worked at Stryker. And I remember fondly still sitting across from a, a Stryker employee my senior year of college and really being interested not only in the conversation, it was a great individual I was talking to, but about the mission and the kind of work, being in healthcare, making a difference, helping patients. And a little bit, I was in awe of the fact they were letting somebody that was graduating with a business degree <laughs> enter sort of a scientific healthcare world uh, and make a difference. And, and so, you know, early on got that opportunity and, uh, and obviously have stuck with it. Now across the 23 plus years, I've worked in all different parts of our company. And, and that's been a real blessing for me just in terms of the experiences and geographic differences. It's been a, it's been a ton of fun and I wouldn't trade any of it, Tom. That's great. Those who typically reach the levels you've reached have done so, I think, by moving to one company or another. Your story is is a, a rarer one, not an absolute exception. But how did you uh, continue to find a way forward in the same organization and sort of look to the greener grass on, on the other side of the fence and decide, no, this is kind of this is where I want to stay. This is where my my career is going to be. Yeah, I know. I've, I've reflected a lot on it uh, as I've spent more time in the space. First off, I'm I'm so thankful and quite frankly lucky that yep. I was uh, fortunate enough to enter into healthcare and and to really help our customers and their patients and and so I'm it's probably the most important thing in in my work today that I still think about that drives me along that journey though I think when I was earlier in my career I kept my head down and tried to do a great job and be the best in the role I was in mm -hmm. I really wasn't looking for the next thing however as I heard about opportunities or or maybe uh, unique situations and challenges, I did raise my hand. And I said, well, that sounds interesting to go try. And that really served me well. And as the responsibilities became greater and maybe some of the challenges became harder, I was willing to sign up for a few of those. And, and hey, I had a lot of tough learning, so they weren't all perfect, but that really served me well. And along the journey, I picked up what I call more battle scars mm -hmm. <laughs> and working in all different parts of our company from you know, our base business, consumable businesses, to all capital businesses, to the implant world. Uh, and all those came with different dynamics, everything from supply chain to relationships to our customers. And I kept building upon those experiences. And so I never let a, a challenge, you know, go to waste. I, I leaned into it and learned from it and try to apply it in the future. And that served me really well. And, and it's helped me stand where I am today. It definitely sounds to be one of the strengths of working at a larger company. You hear those who see the benefits of working at a startup. You get to do a little bit of everything. You get to be right. a jack of all trades. But you had an opportunity to also move from duty to duty and responsibility to responsibility. Yeah, I think, Tom, the other, the other comment is just the consistency of growth in our company over that period. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started with the company, it was obviously a couple million dollars, a couple billion dollars, excuse me. And, <laughs> quite different than it is today. And now, you know, we have 46,000 plus employees worldwide, you know, we'll surpass 17 billion last year in sales. And so just seeing all those different phases and, and it's sort of your comment as you move around in different parts of our organization, we have some startup like businesses and then we have other really established businesses. And so in a big company like ours, you can actually pick up some of those different fields. There's the same culture across all the employees but each of the businesses have sort of their unique characteristics, I like to call them, about how they act and play in a marketplace. And so that's been really fun to have that opportunity as well. That's terrific. Well, let's move into some of the news you've been involved with, and, and that's happened at Stryker. We've got three, I think, major points I want to talk about. I'd like to talk about Wright. I'd like to talk about Mako. 
and sort of where we're headed in the future and some of the challenges that all medtech is facing in the future. Let's first focus on Wright Medical. Talk a bit about the uh, decision that went into expanding that space and into acquiring that company. And then I want to follow up with the second question about sort of the whole integration process. But take us back to the very beginning. What was the rationale behind the acquisition of Wright? Uh, it's it's great to hear the uh, the question and really think back uh, around our approach to category leadership. So when we think of strategy uh, across our enterprise, we really think about how can we further specialize around the caregivers and then think about how can we drive category leadership positions in these specialized markets. And so you can imagine some of the extremity spaces that we had a toe in the water. We were thinking about what more can we do? We had a relatively scaled foot and ankle business. Yet in the upper extremity world, which is one of the fastest growing markets in orthopedics, it wasn't quite at scale and we had a lot of work in front of us. So we were assessing where could we partner, could we find a company to acquire, and Wright Medical was you know, in that radar for quite some time. Then you start to get in, when is the time to approach and, and acquire? Wright had obviously had a good run and made some good moves. It was actually an acquisition they did they sort of stumbled on a little bit and changed the valuation of the company. Uh, and that would allow us to engage in some talks. And mm-hmm. I remember entering into those discussions saying, hey, if, if we could, you know, make the right acquisition here in, in the time frame, pre-pandemic, by the way, Tom, yep. uh, when you think you're walking <laughs> into uh, a global pandemic, we thought this was the, the right approach. And, you know, sure enough, uh, a process kicked off and we were able to acquire the company. That was great. However, things got complicated as the world slowed down and we just did our largest acquisition in, in company history at a $5.4 billion orthopedic elective surgery business um, <laughs> and had to work through that process. But I'm proud to say now it's been extremely successful. It's gone better than we've thought. Uh, it has provided that category leadership. So we're the number one company in the world for foot and ankle, mm-hmm. the number one company in the world for upper extremities. They brought enabling technology along. I do want to admit that integration is hard. Anybody who's done scaled integration, especially in relationship intensive businesses like orthopedics are, it's difficult. But I'm really proud of our employees, grateful for our customers and how they responded. And it's exceeded expectations. Both the portfolio and the talent that came over from Wright Medical have been first class. And we're really excited about the trajectory of those businesses. One other comment, Tom, indirectly, the ability for us to further specialize mm-hmm. has really been valuable. So not only did we specialize in foot and ankle and upper extremities, but it allows us to bring more specialized R&D, marketing, and leadership to trauma. And indirectly, that forces us to be more specialized in joint replacement. So prior to Wright Medical, those were all sort of lumped together. Now, we have much more specialized businesses where we have sales, marketing, research and develop, M&A, specialized around those customers. Interesting. I listened to the podcast we did earlier. You had anticipated a question of mine there and you did it again in terms of how these businesses sort of exist together. Do you view this business as having as sort of three or four verticals that don't really have a lot of cross-pollination of ideas or strategies? Or do you find as you sort of bring in these specialized areas, they actually introduce lessons to help other areas like hip and knee or, or, or something? Do they learn from each other? They do. We, we share best practices. We really try to start with the customer. And what's neat about these businesses that we're talking about, all of them call on the foundation of an orthopedic surgeon, an orthopedic uh, hospital, an orthopedic clinic. However, inside orthopedics, there's a variety of specialization. So you can think of the umbrella and where I might sit, even we have division presidents that run these various divisions. 
they're all focused around the orthopedic customer. Then below that are specialized business units, something around potentially upper extremities and shoulders, then one in trauma, one in knees, one in hips. And interestingly, to your point, we're specialized around how those products are utilized and, and the problems we're solving in their space. However, we're looking for what technologies can we leverage across all those different businesses? Things like 3D printing and additive manufacturing, where we're a world leader. We are taking things and expertise we had and applying it to the right portfolio. Pick on the right portfolio where they come with a world-class pre-planning software called Blueprint. We're taking that technology set and applying that across other specialties. And you can imagine there'll be a position in the market in the future where maybe something like knees can be pre-planned more accurately and faster with some of the technology that come from Right Medical. So those are the type of examples that allows us to keep the customer in mind, leverage the technology set, and continue to drive that specialization. That's great. And let's talk about the, the integration. When we talked, it was, uh, I think, October 2020, the acquisition had just, just sort of happened. You were still just at the beginning of integration. And at the time, you said your goal was you wanted to keep 100% of the, of the sales force. You really wanted to integrate the cultures. And this wasn't one company acquiring products. You were actually acquiring the entire company. How did that process unfold over time? Did it go the way you had anticipated? Yeah, two things that stood out during the integration. Uh, one, the portfolio being really impressed with the technology that I mentioned already. The second and a pleasant surprise was the talent and culture and the people. From the leaders on down, we actually uh, were fortunate enough to, to retain and keep, and they're still with our company and thriving today, the leaders of the upper extremity business and the foot and ankle business. And they have hit the ground running in our organization. That really set the, the foundation for us to retain as much of the workforce as we could. And at the end of the day, we've retained most all with that specialization in the selling organization. So the goal was to keep the selling organizations and drive greater specialization. And more or less, we've done that. You're always with some slight attrition here and there, but generally speaking, uh, it's exceeded expectations in terms of the retention we've had. Now we've had to commit to product flow, making sure people understand their goals. And actually we've, we've been really thankful to our workforce for being patient. You know, mm -hmm. there's been days where our systems have had a snag or we've been working on product supply, but they've been really patient. Uh, we've been really transparent, but I tell you, they're all part of the striker organization now and probably are wearing that, that uh, brand on their front or back or wherever they wear it. And <laughs> it's, been, uh, it's been absolutely terrific. So is it integration, is a good integration, is it more of an art or, or more of a science? And by that, I mean, with a science, you have a formula. If we do this, step one, step two, step three, this will be successful integration with an art. As I see it, you sort of have to read the room and, and understand the cultures and the personalities. I'm guessing it's more art than science. I love the question, Tom. I'll take a quick break from this conversation with Spencer Stiles to bring back Tom O'Mara, Executive Vice President at AutoCam Medical. So, Tom, I understand AutoCam's roots are in the automotive industry. What lessons did you learn from that industry and how does that carry into how you work with medical device companies? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the lessons that we learned over time were that um, we're focused on mutual success. As a contract manufacturer, we're just a part of the puzzle to bringing a product to market successfully and on time. And so we believe the right approach is to be more partner-oriented at the beginning, understanding what the product and result will need, putting our expertise to work, 
developing a relationship based on mutual trust and mutual benefit. And if we work together instead of against each other, we're going to be successful and we're going to bring a product to market, which is best in class, whether it's in speed or technology or value, we're a part of that solution from the very beginning. And we believe that if you get in early and you work to mutual benefit, then both parties will be successful and we'll continue to grow together as our customers grow. So Tom, the last two years have been challenging for everybody. What, uh, how did AutoCam fare during this time and, and what lessons uh, did you learn that you'll be employing in the future? Well, at AutoCAM Medical, we're uh, incredibly blessed this past couple of, of years, uh, very trying times for everyone. We were able to pivot for our customers to stay in business, providing them with the components they needed as an essential supplier. We learned that we, we need to rely on each other. We learned also that uh, you have to be able to move on a moment's notice to change almost instantly. We needed to be quicker, more nimble, and more flexible to the challenges as they arose. And it's an absolute necessity to have associates that, that will come along with you. So we've grown our business actually in the last couple of years and we continue to grow it. We're incredibly optimistic uh, with the prospects of the future. We're well capitalized. As I mentioned before, we're adding a new facility here in Michigan and continue to look to expand globally to help our customers grow their businesses. That's great. Thanks again to Tom O'Mara, Executive Vice President at AutoCam Medical for joining us. And thanks, of course, to AutoCam Medical for sponsoring this very first episode of the Striker Talks podcast. And if you'd like more information about AutoCam Medical, you can go to their website, autocam-medical.com. So that's A-U-T-O-C-A-M-medical.com. So is an integration, is a good integration, is it more of an art or, or more of a science? And by that, I mean, with a science, you have a formula. If we do this, step one, step two, step three, this will be successful integration. With an art, as I see it, you sort of have to read the room and, and understand the cultures and the personalities. I'm guessing it's more art than science. I love the question, Tom. I'm going to answer it this way. It's both. <laughs> there, are, there are aspects of a successful integration that is science, and these are lessons learned and best practices that you carry forward that early on in the planning process, you make decisions on and the decisions are, I'm going to say somewhat centrally driven, such as systems and process, potentially size and scope and footprint, things like this that you can say, these will create value if we quickly decide and we quickly align on, on areas where we've learned from past acquisitions that we can apply rigor to. And that's the science. Then there's the art aspect, which there in every deal, there's definitely a need for art and integration. And that's really on the feel, the culture, the behaviors, and what's expected today and what's expected in the future. And you do have to blend the science and art together. I love your question because it's something we debate as an executive leadership team at the organization. What bucket should we be keep moving to the science and what gets to stay as an art? <laughs> <laughs> and, and my argument is usually each market that we enter or each acquisition we do has nuances, has some unique aspects of the organization that's created value. How do we preserve that and carry that forward? And where can we leverage where we've had great success as a big multinational company? That really is a combination of art and science. And one we're perfecting, just recently, for example, we, we acquired uh, Vocera. And that is, to your exactly to your point, a combination of science and art. You can imagine 
part of their specialty is in the algorithms and the software and their, their brains that have figured out this communication pathway and how can we preserve that? There's a ton of art there, Tom, a ton. Yet at the same time, you know, the systems they use, the process, the footprint, where they are, how they are, we can bring more rigor to that from the striker side. And I think that's that balance, but it's a, it's a great thing. And I think you're constantly working on this science and art of integration. No, but Sarah is a great point. And just for sake of clarity for folks, we're recording this on February 22nd. So uh, likely we'll be closed by the time that the podcast is, is aired. But I'm curious, using Vicera as a model or looking back to right at this point where the deal's not quite closed yet, how baked is your integration plan? Do you just sort of have like, we'll plan out the sort of guidelines. And then when once we close on the deal, we get into the company, then we sort of complete the rest of the integration plan. Or do you go in with a plan fully loaded and ready to go the moment the deal is closed? Yeah. So generally we have a playbook and that playbook gives guidance around what parts are science that we think the assumptions we make prior to the deal and then defer to what's art. A lot of the human resource elements, the discussions, the culture, the behaviors, even that customer intimacy that we want to preserve and maintain. So in the process, we are thinking about this and depending on the type of integration or the timing, you can imagine with right. We sat in regulatory review for well over 12 months. Yeah, that's right. There, there was lots of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of time to think. Yeah. There's lots of thinking. And through all that, it's a regulated set of discussions. So you have to be really careful on how much we're talking about, what we're sharing and not. And we follow, obviously, all the rules and regs in that process. However, you start to refine your assumptions so that when you get to day one, you can give clarity. I think if you're on the The side of the business that gets acquired, you want clarity as soon as possible. You want to know what does the next three months look like, six months, one year, two years. And the sooner the acquiring company, Stryker in this case, can tell the the company we're going after that clarity, the better. It removes a lot of the anxiety. It brings clarity to the direction. And so the more we can plan up front and think about that and then hit the ground running day one, the better. Actually, with Wright, it's one of the keys to success. Mm -hmm. Really thankful for the quick decisions we made. The first day that we acquired the business, we were able to announce the leadership team all the way down to really the sales leadership team. A month after, we're announcing all the sales management ranks and any other roles we didn't. We gave clarity around what does a future state look like. It, it was really valuable to at least relieve the that anxiety of emotion around, hey, what does this look like? Then you have to work through all the nuances. But thinking through that in the integration process, again, there's probably some art in the timing. Over a year with Wright, uh, Vocera's uh, a few months in the making in terms of that planning. So each one has some some differences in timing, but it's an evolution that we're always working at. Excellent. Well, let's uh, I could talk about this all day, obviously, but let's let's move on to Mako. So it's, it's interesting when you said it was the biggest acquisition. I thought for a moment that Mako would have been, but Wright was a lot bigger than Mako. <laughs> Mako was was huge at the time. But uh, let's look at where you are currently with Mako? I mean, we've already moved into sort of the, it's an established part of of orthopedics. It's a growing part of orthopedics. Surgical robotics is growing. We're seeing lots of different players here. Where is Stryker in sort of its Mako strategy and where is it going? And specifically, I want to learn about your digital strategy, uh, digital surgery strategy. So give us an update right now on Mako, and then let's start to look forward and talk digital surgery. Uh, Super. The pandemic was a fascinating time to sort of assess and see how Mako went through the pandemic and did the demand increase or not, knowing there was a slowdown in elective surgeries, 
capital environment was unpredictable, I'll call it, yet Mako shined. It was really neat to see the continued demand for Mako. And interestingly, Tom, not just, you know, at the community hospital, but what we saw the shift in the back half of 20 and throughout 21 was the adoption in the teaching centers across the United States and even in some of the global teaching centers in orthopedics. And really what that started to tell us is this is moving to, and you sort of said it in the, the lead in, to the standard of care. That if you're at a teaching institution that specializes in orthopedics, as a student, as a fellow, as a resident, you want to have exposure to a robot in orthopedics, and in particular, MAKO because of its strong number one leadership position. So we've actually seen increased demand. We have well over 1,300 MAKO robots uh, throughout the world right now and significant utilization. What's really interesting to see is the growth in our knee franchise and actually right now, approximately 50% of our knees go in robotically of our product, the triathlon, which is a, a remarkable statistic. If we look back just, you know, a handful of years that, you know, it was once upon a time, 10, then 20, 30, all the way up to 50%. Yeah, that surprised me when you said that on the analyst call in the fall. I, I didn't think it'd be that high. It's been really neat to see, which again, sort of highlights the standard of care discussion. Now there's been other competitive entrants, right? And so I think for us, it raises the tide for everyone that now more discussions are taking place at hospitals across the world saying, we need a robotic solution in orthopedics and we want something. And a lot of times, more often than not, MAKO is the selected choice. And, and, and I think it's because of that strong utilization. We're really careful to make sure that we're not just dropping one off at the loading dock, but instead going through an entire process of making sure we have a champion user, that they understand the technology that they're trained and certified, that we have the service and support. You put all that in, it's a really successful program to build utilization and scale. And as you would imagine, a lot of our growth comes from competitive users that say, hey, we want to switch over and now try this. Mm -hmm. And for all the, the great benefits of robotics, better for the patient, better for the, the provider. And we're seeing you know, the outcomes be remarkable, both for the surgeon, their predictability. We have the happier patient. It's really been fun to be a part of. And we couldn't be probably more excited about what the future has for Makos. I think it's just the beginning. Really, the big application that drove us to this point was neat. We're just amping up on hips right now. We launched a new software program last year that's gaining traction, and it's on the majority of our systems. We're launching a direct anterior hip right now. Uh, real time, it'll come out at the academy that it's in about another month called Insignia. That'll be on Mako as well. And I think we're just going to continue to see that growth trajectory take off. So really excited about what we're doing with Mako. You're going to be talking at our Device Talks Boston meeting about your digital surgery strategy. You brought on Tracy Robertson. You have Robert Cohen. What does digital surgery mean in terms of robotics? Is it just an umbrella term and under which robotics fits? Or why is it important to have a broader digital surgery strategy? It's a super question. It's going to tie to some of my earlier remarks. And I really think about this mega trend in our industry of understanding how to collect more of the information that's created by our devices and from the patients and making sense of that and utilizing it to create value in the future. That could be a, a more predictable intervention, a better surgery, a smarter device, you know, a preemptive strike on service, whatever these things might be. The information that's created, this digital information is something we need to make sure we're, we're harvesting the right way and partnering to provide value in the future. So last year, in the uh, really the end of the first quarter, 
we activated on and kicked off what we call our DRE organization, which is Digital Robotics and Enabling Technologies. That's led by Robert Cohen, who you just mentioned. And we actually took a variety of disparate technologies and experts that were working on these technologies all over the world and pulled them together and put them under one organization, one entity. And that's new to Striker. I just mentioned we're very specialized, except when the technology set can be utilized across a variety of different specialized disease states, like in robotics, like in navigation, like in imaging, and the digital information, the technology information that comes from these procedures. So we put this group together last year, we kicked it off, uh, and it's really separated into two entities. You have the robots and enabling tech where Mako lives, as well as our aero device, our navigation device, so imaging, 3D navigation technologies, all that together lives in one side of the house. The other side that Tracy leads is the digital aspect. And that's the area that's collecting information, storing inf information on the Striker Health Cloud, making sense of it, partnering, and then utilizing it to create value in the future. We really believe this is a trend that industry really has to help drive with key customers across a variety of different markets and landscapes all over the world to make sure that we're progressing our industry for better care. Hopefully it helps drive costs out of the system. Hopefully it drives an improved outcome for our patients. And we're really excited about the early indicators. Let me give you some real life examples. Something like Mako has been squarely focused and appropriately on knees and hips. Well, moving it to this entity, we've now brought more expertise to some of the other specialties like upper extremities and shoulder, like spine, and saying, what more can we do to accelerate our programs in these spaces what more can we do to take world-class pre-planning technology like Blueprint? What more can we be doing to share the camera technology on navigation? And how can we utilize that to accelerate the way that we bring products to market and make it a stronger, better product with more commonality? At the end of the day, if, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you want that interface, you want it all to work together. You're really not overly concerned that it comes from joint replacement or trauma extremities or spine. You need this to hold together. And you can imagine, Tom, and something like Mako, where we have, you know, this well over 1,300 units across the world, that's a lot of real estate and footprint that we can build upon. That's really the push. A little longer term is digital. And thinking about how to collect this information, utilize it, put it in the cloud, build all the security around it, and then drive this forward. But it's it's a mega trend we're capitalizing on. And early days, we're really excited and, and uh, grateful about our progress so far. What do you think this whole area looks like in 10 years, digital surgery-wise? Are we going to see robotics as just a small subset of, of everything we can do? I love thinking about 10 years from now. <laughs> it's my hope that robotics are uh, really a standard of care across all of hard tissue interventions, and that we have applications built out for a variety of these more complex surgeries that require accuracy, uh, that require predictability. And even if they're tasks that are a bit basic, can we get those out of the hands of, of the surgeon where we can see a lot more uh, automation out of the robot where they can actually do some of the cutting by itself. So you can imagine that someday where we actually see the robot performing some of these basic tasks. And 10 years is the horizon where I think that will definitely take place. On the information and digital, hopefully we know so much more at that point about the technology itself, the products, but more importantly about the patient and potentially exactly what the patient needs well before they ever show up for surgery. So will we know the exact implant, the exact size, the exact length of time that intervention will take place? 
plus what the outcome looks like. That's a really powerful force, which right now is still um, an art, to use a term from earlier. And can we bring more science to this? So I imagine that we will feel and see a whole different world in 10 years related to how we leverage technology to provide better care. And can we do that and drive efficiency, take cost out, help with the staffing crisis that we're running into right now, and, and hopefully drive devices to do more work? It's a really exciting thing to think about. And it's one of the things that I'm most optimistic about the opportunities to improve healthcare over the next 10 years. And final question, I know you got to go. Taking our future binoculars a little closer to today and the immediate future, when we talked back in October 2020, I anticipate having to ask a question about supply chain, but how have the supply chain challenges affected Stryker in getting the materials you need? I'd have to think that systems like Mako require the chips that everyone is having a difficult time finding, other materials as well. Talk about uh, your supply chain challenges and what you're doing to manage them. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a very hot topic right now across uh, industry and with our business as well. I'll, I'll start with robots. Fortunately, the number of units isn't at the scale that the automotive business is, you know, mm-hmm. down the street here in the, in the state that I'm currently talking from. So it's a little different numbers game. However, we've seen our own set of challenges. That being said, our suppliers have been outstanding. They've been great partners to us. They know we're in the healthcare business. They know we have life-saving devices. And so we've actually seen our our products that need um, urgent attention taken care of. We've had to be a bit more thoughtful longer term about thinking about, okay, can we move off an order that has significant capital product that's not urgent? And we've had to do a lot more shuffling and we thank our, our customers for their patience there. We do believe there's light at the end of the tunnel. We think we have a few more months of tough going, and hopefully by the second half of this year, we really see the supply chain open up, both from a technology and chip standpoint, but in other areas as well. I tell you that hopefully we we can control a lot of that, where some of the pain points are in the market right now are still on staffing. And so we feel that same staffing challenge in some of our plants and really pleased with the progress that we put into it. But the question is, how can we help our customers as well? And so I think that's something we'll all be working together. I will tell you, Tom. I want to highlight it. If you would have had this call with me uh, 30 days ago in the month of January, I'd have a lot more anxiety maybe in my feel than I do today. It's It's been remarkable. Just, I'll say here, a month after January at the back end of February, how much across our globe has started to, to change how it feels. Oh, interesting. In terms of elective surgery coming back on, people starting to travel again, people being out with customers, we're seeing it across Europe, we're seeing it across the United States. It's really remarkable just in the last couple of weeks, the uptick that we felt. So let's hope, fingers crossed, that people are healthy and maybe the virus is, is uh, moved to this endemic state. Uh, that'd be wonderful. That's sort of the feel today and, and just uh, really excited about the months ahead. Yeah, yours is actually for supply chain wise, the first hopeful comment I had in terms of we may be seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. It's really uh, exciting to hear. Final question. So six months from now, sounds like supply chain may ease up but staffing shortages could could continue to be a problem. That's right. I think we'll I think we'll feel the staffing challenges in particular with our customers inside the United States and I think throughout Europe as well. Yeah. That we'll have to partner with and help and think through how can we move some surgeries to other sites of care like ambulatory surgery centers, are there other things our products can provide? I do love that the value of all of our feet on the street across industry at Striker and other companies is very high right now. They they provide a really important service of getting inventory in the right place, helping with you know sort of the the challenges that some of these customers face in in their supply. 
So I think that continues to to serve us well, but we really got to come together and think how we can solve some of these bigger challenges with staffing over the next few years. Education, training, more people entering, you know, the nursing ranks, I think are going to be really important things that we partner with. Excellent. Well, great conversation, Spencer. Thank you for uh, joining us on the podcast. Great. Thanks, Tom. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us on this very first episode of the Striker Talks podcast. Thanks, of course, to our guest, Spencer Stiles. Thanks also to the comms team at Striker. This is uh, not an easy effort and requires a lot of teamwork, and I appreciate all the support. Finally, I'd like to ask you to be part of that effort. You could do two things. You could subscribe to this podcast by liking or following the Device Talks podcast channel. You can find that on any podcast application, Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify. We're on them all. Please do click like, follow, or subscribe, and you won't miss a future episode of Striker Talks. You'll also receive our episodes of the Device Talks weekly podcast. So lots of great MedTech content there. You can also find these podcast episodes on devicetalks.com, on Striker's site, striker.com. But it would be better for everyone if you would just subscribe. That way you don't miss a future episode of the Striker Talks podcast. And please help us out by letting folks know and letting the world know that this podcast exists. You can do that by sharing this episode on social media. If you put it up there on Twitter, please tag me. I am at MedTechTom. Would love to connect with you there. Please put it out on LinkedIn as well. And you connect with me also. I am Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I, and I would love to connect with you and be part of your future MedTech conversations. Well, that's it. Thanks again for joining us on this very first episode of the Striker Talks podcast. Join us next month. We'll have another great episode of Striker Talks waiting for you.